welcome to this session. We will have some housekeeping announcement in the beginning. Hello, can everyone hear me okay? Yes. yes. You're all very, very welcome. Um, I have a couple of announcements to make around housekeeping. Um, firstly, my name is Ronan, and you also have my colleague here in the corner, Honora. If you have any questions, you can always ask us. Um, most importantly, the session that we currently have running is um, transition from open strategy to open practice. Should you all be here? Yes? Okay, excellent. Okay, so the most important information. In the very, very unlikely event of a fire, the exits are just to the left. So if you come up the stairs to the left, turn left again, you will see the door in the corner. Okay, so the door is in the corner here. The nearest toilets, if you go up one level, you will have toilets directly in front of you. Or else, if you go, go to where you registered, there will be toilets at that location also. Okay? And the water fountain, if you pop back out and head back down towards registra registration, halfway down on the right-hand side, you will find a water fountain should you wish to, to use it. And last but not least, what's next after this session? So following this, there is the Lieber AGM. And that will take place in the Edmund Burke Theatre, which is in the reception area. And that will take place at 4.15 p.m. Okay? So I'll now pass you over to the chair. Thank you. Thank you. Now you got all the information about the session, so I think we start the session and go from the transition. So first we have Gwen Frank, and she will talk about insights in the economy of open scholarship. The floor is yours. <laughs> yes, you were too. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome also from my side. I'm not Gwen Frank. She will. Uh, I will just hand over to her. Um, my name is Juliane Kant. I'm from the DFG, the German Research Foundation, which is one of the biggest funders in uh, Germany. Research funders, um, and the DFG is member of a um, European cooperative called Knowledge Exchange. And it is my pleasure to pre present today some of Knowledge Exchange's work on the economy of open scholarship together with Gwen Frank. We have worked together on this. Knowledge Exchange um, has commissioned the study and Gwen uh, yeah, did the study. I will give you first some background information on Knowledge Exchange before handing over to Gwen. So Knowledge Exchange is a cooperative of six organizations working together to support the use and development of digital infrastructure and services for higher education and research. And although the organizations are very different in size and scope of their work, each has a national responsibility and influence on national policy operates, um, to operate at cutting edge level of IT development and we can mobilize research resources that can make a difference. We work together with experts in, um, on open access and open scholarship. Um, and we are a small organization, but with sufficient allocated staff within the partner organizations and central support um, from the Knowledge Exchange Office. So what is Knowledge Exchange mission and objectives? We would like to inspire new approaches and enhance current practice of research and higher education using IT. We would like to improve the infrastructure and services available to scholars and researchers. And we would like to stimulate productive networks and create and share knowledge collaboratively. 
Our topics and recommendations are driven by experts and partner organizations' interests. And um, what maybe is also important, that we are not depending on external subsidies such as European funds. So what are we actually doing? Our current areas of focus are open access and open scholarship. Um, our main theme is open scholarship, an integrated approach to all that is needed to make open scholarship possible. Mm, our objective is to better understand the economy of open scholarship and develop ways to better evaluate contributions to open research. We are currently working on three topics within this focus area. In the first um, activity on the economy of open scholarship models and concepts, we are working together with experts to publish a book um, where we would like to understand the mechanisms of open scholarship, including the scope, motivations, mechanism and implications of current and future actions. The second activity you will see soon hear more about from Gwen. And I only want to say that we have been gathering um, use cases of existing initiatives that demonstrate success in moving open scholarship forward or clarify barriers that need to be resolved. And the third activity, open scholarship and research evaluation, is aiming to advance the recognition of those who contribute to open scholarship with an openness profile. In addition, um, we are working on open access, which is a long-standing topic that we pursue. Uh, we are working on open access monographs, monitoring, as well as on preprints. Um, within the preprints activity, we are exploring the status of preprints in current research practice, that is the uptake of use and reasons for researchers to make preprint services, um, to make use of preprint services, as well as the potential impact of preprints on the research process. And if you are interested in hearing more about this topic, you are warm warmly invited to come to our poster. Mm, but now coming back to the insight into the economy of open scholarship. Before handing over to Gwen, I would like to show you who has contributed to this activity. Um, and um, as you can see, we have worked together with a group of experts from all knowledge exchange countries, that is Denmark, France, Finland, Germany, the Netherlands and UK. And um, as Gwen will probably also tell you, we have just published a report about this work yesterday. So if you, after the talk, um, ask, want, still want to know more about it, um, you can download the report. Now I hand over to Gwen. Okay, thank you, Juliana. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, I'm going to start to say that uh, it, it, this was really like this was for me was a very interesting uh, report to write. Like it was very one, but uh, it can be a bit challenging challenging to actually talk about it because I've interviewed ten people with different views from different backgrounds, different organizations. So it's very difficult to <laughs> to present like common conclusions for everybody. So this is a bit of a caveat at the start of this presentation. I will I will uh, discuss uh, a number of topics that uh, let me say more than two of the interviewees brought up as a sort of like a common concern or a common challenge. But uh, not everything that I'm going to say is applicable to everybody uh, who I've interviewed. So um, these are the names of the people that uh, feature in the report. So uh, Martin Pauli from Open Library of Humanities, Pierre Meunier from Open Edition, uh, Yoni Tuomisto from Opasnet in Finland, 
Jessica Polka from ASA Bio in the United States, uh, Stephanie Dawson from Science Open in Germany, Jadranka Stoyanovsky from Hrčak in uh, Croatia, uh, Lena Kakinen from Helsinki University Press, uh, Hedrick Pivovar from Impact Story, Mark Hainel from Fixshare, and Tim Smith from CERN. So as you can see, I mean, I don't know if you recognize all of these names, but quite, quite a, a, um, a lot of variation in the type of organization, their backgrounds, the size, and their activities. But one thing they all have in common is that they are active in the field of open scholarship. And uh, in uh, one form or another, they, they are actually uh, offer a type of innovative service or an innovative uh, business model that allows them to remain uh, in business, being business put between brackets because not all of the, the interviewees were actually, uh, are actually uh, commercial uh, companies. Um, <clears throat> these are the seven, uh, seven challenges that actually were mentioned, like I said, by two or more of the interviewees. And uh, I'm just going to go over them uh, after this with some, uh, some of their main points, some of their main suggestions, uh, illustrated with some quotes. Uh, as Juliana said, I would highly recommend that you uh, download the full report if you want to know the full background, and it's also uh, if you want to know who said what, because uh, that's not always, uh, that will not always be featured in the slides. So um, <clears throat> the challenges are, of course, uh, the human resources. Um, one uh, second challenge is more related to their business model is um, whether they're, they're a commercial company or a nonprofit organization. Um, then infrastructural challenges they all, most of the interviewees faced. Um, of course, it was given a lot of attention to licensing and intellectual property issues. Uh, sustainability and scalability of the organization uh, obviously is, is a, a topic uh, that's, that's sort of underlying most of the other of these other challenges. Um, marketing might be a bit of a surprising challenge that, that was giving a bit more thought than you might expect from, from some. And then the general influence on workflows and, uh, and the research landscape. So um, <clears throat> let me start with, with uh, the human resources, so researchers in business. Um, I think almost everybody who have interviewed uh, faced a challenge, and I think most, some of you in the room here as well will, will have the same issues, like how do you attract suitable profiles on a limited, uh, on a limited budget? And secondly, that quite some of the profiles you need are not always full-time positions, and um, um, either because you cannot afford a full-time position or, either, or because the work is not full-time, and so that makes it there's an additional difficulty that a lot of these organizations face, that they need some technical support, they need some juridical advice, but they don't have the funds or don't have actually the, the idea of hiring somebody full-time for, uh, for to do this. <coughs> um, another uh, issue and uh, is that uh, quite a couple of the interviewees and and maybe i don't need to mention about who this this is but um, it's really a one woman or a one-man show and um <clears throat> although this is i mean i'm not sure if it's really always an issue but it becomes an issue if this person really feels that they have to carry the entire organization and then if you link that back to the issues that a lot of a lot of them face uh, with attracting uh, capable staff that is that is willing to remain on for a longer time. Um, a couple of the interviews really said that they had difficulties keep on running the business, being the face of the, of the company, but also often actually offering the technical and infrastructural uh, support of the, that their company needs. So that is really something that was flagged by a couple of my interviewees. Uh, and then uh, a third thing that I want to highlight is that almost all of my interviewees, uh, even the commercial ones, really said that they uh, ground funding 
the, one of the main things that they use it for is, is actually to staff, uh, to hire staff to work on innovation, so to work on anything, anything more than just a day-to-day -day business. And they were really, say, a lot of them really said that if we wouldn't have grant funding, we can only run our business as it is right now. But if you want to remain uh, on top, if you want to remain ahead of the game, we really need this, um, we really need grant funding to actually uh, hire the suitable profiles for that. <coughs> So here are some quotes that, that illustrate these points. Um, so uh, Heather from Impact Story said that, that that's really she has a downside because she's a very small organization. Um, to to uh, she doesn't have really have in-house support. Um, uh, Opasnet had the same issue, and then uh, Martin Polyev, who he really faced the issue of the one man show. Uh, so he really wanted to uh, to. To delegate most of the practical work to to uh, dedicated staff, and uh, remain on as an uh, academic advisor. Um, then something surprising: uh, there was really not always a hard division between commercial and uh, non-commercial work, and quite a lot of the interviewees um, that were like that I would I would have classified as commercial or, or not as non-commercial uh, organizations actually really. Uh, uh, double and you do, do have a lot of consultancy work and uh, license out infrastructure and uh, uh, etc. So it's really it's it's often a mixed approach and and the, the official status of the organization is really not always uh, does not always reflect their actual um, their actual business model. <coughs> but this formal status has influence on grants and project participation and their reputation. So uh, that was a complaint uh, voiced by some of the commercial or like the, the, the officially commercial uh, companies that I interviewed that they have their reputation reputation issue if they want to participate in projects. Um, yeah. So at the other side, what what I heard a lot was um, with a non non commercial organization was a bit of jealousy or a bit of envy of the nimbleness of the startup mentality of the commercial. Uh, Companies they really face a bit of an issue with, with uh, especially if they're linked to an in institution. Uh, a lot of these um, interviewees face a bit of a challenge that they had difficulties to changing their business model or making like swift uh, adaptations to it uh, because it ha always have to go to a certain chain of command. While the commercial startups, especially, really had um, really had it a lot e easier because they could just they had an idea and they could implement it. Um, um, two things that they all have in common, whether they're commercial or not commercial, is of course, obviously, we're talking about open scholarship here, that, that intellectual property rights are, are monetized, and that everybody was really explicitly uh, uh, against data or vendor lock-in, either from their own servers or in the acquisition of, of external services. Um, again, two quotes, I'll go over these. maybe. Uh, so uh, Tim Smith from Zenodo talked about the, the, the added value of commercial operators, how they can spawn innovation, but that they should not, uh, they should not actually be allowed to uh, own or um, like be a gatekeeper of, uh, on an infrastructural level. And then uh, I, I included this quote by Heather from Impact Story because she, that's really a, a, a very uh, good illustration of the gray zone that some of these organizations are in. So um, she really, I think they are officially in a, a, a non-commercial 
company, or at least they were at the moment I interviewed them. But of course, they do they do endeavor in a lot of uh, lot of uh, activities that can be classified as uh, as commercial. So that's really <coughs> that's really something that uh, that gave me gave me some thought. Um, <coughs> yes, on the infrastructure level, uh, all of them face make or buy dilemmas. Do you make something in house, or do you? Uh, do you go and buy your infrastructure with a commercial provi commercial external provider? Do you invest in in-house development? Um, quite a lot of them said that external providers are the, the most suitable or even the, the only solution. Again, uh, no data, no vendor or data lock-in uh, was mentioned by some people. Um, <coughs> I thought Mark's, Mark from Fixture's quote was interested. Of course, he sells, he licenses the infrastructure, so like he, he, he would say this, but he really said that it's, uh, and, and it, was, it was confirmed by some other interviewees that it's actually better use of public funds sometimes to buy it externally than to actually develop it uh, in-house. Um, and then Stephanie Dawson, these are not, it's not a coincidence that these are two commercial companies, of course, but um, they said that, uh, that she feels that sometimes libraries project, project their bad experiences with publishers onto their dealings with them. To be clear, every or these quotes are for the record, <laughs> are for the, the, the interviewees, uh, and are not my, my personal opinions necessary. Um, <clears throat> then licensing. We're talking about open scholarship, so uh, most of the interviewees were, of course, um, very um, in favor of openly licensing their own content. But when it comes to hosted content, there was a lot of more caution, because people are actually <clears throat> Um, yeah, especially when you're, when you're a platform, something not always the content you host is, of course, you're, you don't always have the right. So in that case, it it's becomes difficult to, uh, to apply in open license or even impossible. Um, but also in some cases, the community really doesn't want a certain type of open license. And that was, um, uh, especially in humanities, that, that's an issue, of course, that they cannot, uh, they don't want to impose uh, as a service provider, they don't want to impose the most open licenses. Although they, they try to nudge people into that direction. And uh, not in the least also because uh, there might be some legal consequences. Uh, and especially clearing some license content for, for open licensing is, is challenging. And it's not always the cost that can be, uh, if, if, if it goes wrong, it might be uh, an issue for these uh, organizations to carry this cost. Uh, it was mentioned by almost everybody that the fine print of open licenses is difficult to grasp and that it needs to be... Uh, there needs, there's more need to just need for training. Um, yeah, the infrastructure of most most of the interviewees is, uh, was open source, and if not, it was really because it's an essential. The licensing out of it was an essential part of the business model. Um, but none of the interviewees uh, actually said that non-commercial licenses are a workable solution for their own content. Not even for their software. Not for their uh, not for the materials they produce. So that was everybody was very vocal about that. <coughs> um, Mainly because they're they're very difficult to enforce, and uh, that uh, also non-compliance of uh, with the with the non-commercial license might be very difficult to uh, to detect. Again, if you're a small company organization, that might uh, it, you don't have the means to patrol the entire internet to to uh, spot abuse of your uh, of your license. Um, <coughs> Yes, when you talk about sustainability and scalability, um, what, what struck me was that there is no aim for monopolization. So, uh, and quite a lot of initiatives actually really are, were very eager to have their model copied. 
by other organizations instead of or by other businesses instead of like themselves necessarily uh, necessarily uh, expanding. Um, all of the interviewees actually wanted to move away from the grant cycle with the caveat of what I said before that for most of them it's necessary to, uh, to uh, hire staff uh, for innovative activities. And the importance of uh, institutional support was mentioned by, by all of them that, that it's really like they need the libraries, they need the uh, universities that they're based on for uh, sometimes only for the desk and the chair that they work on, but also, also often for the technical, juridical, administrative help that uh, they cannot, uh, they don't have uh, their own staff for. And um, one idea that was put forward by, by a couple of interviewees that is more need for centralized support for open source activities. So, um, where there would be like a central fund for people um, to draw from, for, for people who actually create open source uh, software infrastructure, and that this should be something that should be actually uh, incorporated in the maybe European Commission project grants uh, structure. Uh, it was it was pretty vague, mentioned by a couple of people. I, there was not not a very practical. Uh, practical uh, work workout but it might be it might be something to think about uh, because it would be some sort of reward for people who actually make sure that who make some infrastructure that is used by a lot of people available for free um, <coughs> then marketing that was uh, that was interesting as well because you really had two different approaches and it was really not related to whether it's about a commercial company or, or a non not for not for profit so um, one the one half of my interviews really never never talk, gave marketing a lot of thought, um, and found out that it becomes a staffing challenge later on because it's it's uh, not only to uh, increase take up but also when it comes to applying for grants and things like that you really have to prove you have to give social media numbers and stuff like that and they really struggle they really struggle with this, <coughs> and then the other half really uh, yeah they 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 were really very clever with it from the start. But at the same time, um, a remark from uh, Heather Pivovar from Impact Story actually um, proves that it's all very relative because they had once a product that was, had a really high take up on social media and that did not have the sufficient conversion in order to, for it to remain sustainable. So uh, it was the importance of marketing was actually uh, was stressed by everybody, but not necessarily uh, uh, confirmed. Uh, uh, or not exactly proved the, the importance proved uh, by the by what's happened in practice. Um, <coughs> yeah. So then uh, I asked, also asked people what the influence on workflows and the research landscape was, what they thought their business um, businesses influence was. Uh, and quite a lot of them said that they realize that their success is usually based on the fact that they are a convenient solution and not necessarily that all of their users are open science uh, idealists. Um, so, that, I mean, everybody was quite, quite uh, yeah, you know, uh, um, they were quite clear about that. So they didn't, they didn't really have this idea that, that all of their users are this, this uh, idealistic users who would use their service in any case. No, their service was used because it's convenient and it's the best solution. Uh, at the same time, there is a growing awareness that's, that, that's spotted by everybody. And um, it was also mentioned that um, nudging is more uh, useful, uh, to nudging people towards open scholarship is, is more effective than actually uh, obliging them. Uh, not only when it comes, for example, to open licensing, as I said before, <coughs> um, but in general, uh, they try to, to 
have imposed like open workflows on people, but because it's it's the easiest thing to do, not because it's necessarily uh, uh, the right thing to do, although it is, of course, but uh, they were very pragmatic about that. So moving forward, <coughs> um, we have actually yeah, four, four suggestions. Um, one to reach a critical mass, one for a change in licensing and IP culture, uh, one to keep on avoiding vendor and data lock-in, and uh, one about incentives for innovation. Again, uh, the report has been published uh, yesterday, so if you want to read the full text, uh, please, uh, I'll provide a link at the end. <clears throat> so there is a continued need for qualitative training on open scholarship related topics. Um, but next to that, there's also a need for professional advice on available services and tools, and uh, by not, not only by the big commercial players. Um, this is something that came up a couple of times, and that is that especially at universities, uh, especially when you're talking about IP and licensing, I'll come back to that in the next slide as well, um, the limited advice that is being offered on infrastructural level, for example, is often, often comes from one corner, and it keeps on being a grow, there is a continuing need for, for uh, advice that is more focused on the open, the open aspects of, of a scholar, scholarship. So, um, and then again, professional advice. So uh, for example, on juridical, uh, juridical level, not only um, somebody who's, uh, people who are actually uh, uh, like have juridical background, so who can actually proper, give, give proper legal advice. And then uh, it was again mentioned that, um, Continuing availability of grant support for small businesses is necessary to, to allow them to remain innovative and to come up with new solutions that will actually be picked up. This is actually, I mean, has anybody heard of OpasNet? No, so this is actually quite, quite an interesting uh, interview, but this, was a this is a wiki, a Finnish wiki, and they, they really had, there's only eight people working with this wiki, so it's this is not like a big, a big, uh, uh, a big business or anything. But it was very, it was very interesting because they really try to, uh, they really have a, a wiki-based open workflow. And they, uh, this, this unit uh, uh, to a and they really had this idea that with this wiki, and they they showcase how they do it and how user-friendly a wiki can be and things like that. And they really had the influence, the impression that they had a, an influence on these colleagues who are not working necessarily on this project, but who they're working with the fact that they were doing everything in the open. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, of course, uh, there are always some, some practical challenges uh, that, that, uh, that people keep on facing. Um, as I said in my previous slide, when it comes to licensing and IP, um, most institutions are still very patent and IP uh, centered and uh, they really need, uh, there's really need for advice. On, uh, on open licensing uh, prof and professional legal advice. Um, <clears throat> the incorrect application of licenses by uh, research performing organizations and service providers and by publishers. Um, I'm not only talking about licensing stuff that is in the public domain, but uh, I take an example from, from Stephanie Dawson from Science Open. Um, she, uh, they aggregate publications and she says like in a lot of cases, the licensing information is not in the right metadata field. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's quite a lot, might be quite a lot of more stuff that is actually open that is just not being indexed because it's in the, because it's in the wrong 
metadata field. So this is something that really needs attention, and I think libraries should also play can also play a big role in this. Um, <clears throat> yeah, clarity about licensing requirements. This, this is all a bit about uh, related to each other. That there's still a lot of unclarity about what an open license means, what you have to do to apply it, what are the consequences. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, so for example, Jessica Polka from ASA Bio said that uh, knowing the exact ramification of applying it license is, uh, is essential. Yeah, so vendor and data lock-in. This is, uh, I think this is quite self-evident. Self Do not accept contracts <laughs> and include clauses that uh, no data vendor lock-in will happen. Easier said than done, of course. Um, <clears throat> And then I think I just want to stress this last sentence that recognition of innovative tools and workflows and research assessment is crucial um, because only like this, uh, this will change to so change and uh, change in demand from, uh, from the user side. Um, I'll just end with this lovely quote from, uh, from Martin Polyev. So this is it. I know it's a bit challenging because I, I have to represent the views of 10 different interviewees, but uh, in the, the interview, the, the collection of interviews is actually has a concluding part where, where whatever, I've, whatever I've been saying here is actually written out. So um, this is where you can find us. Thank you, Gwen. So we take questions in the end if you have time for that. So, so welcome to the next speaker. And it's Julien Semperé. And he will talk about making open science transparent, the BiblioLabs project. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, hello, everybody. So, uh, as you can see on the, the, the uh, on the slide, we were supposed to be three of us. <laughs> So the first one, we didn't have enough money <laughs> to, to send, it, send him with us. And the second one, he was blocked at the airport yesterday night. So uh, that's the, the hard way, the hard path of open science. So uh, I'm the last one to speak uh, today with you. So I hope I will be clear about this project. So uh, in fact, at the really beginning, we didn't want to do what I will explain, it was randomly that we discovered that we could do that. So uh, I w it's like research, in fact. <laughs> Maybe we don't find, uh, sometimes we don't find what we were uh, searching. So we are working in, a, today, a university system in south of Paris. Uh, in this uh, university system is the first uh, research area in France. So it's a lot of uh, uh, labs, uh, we will see that. And we are merging and organizing everything in a new brand university in 2020. So it's in that perspective, we are working to um, work on the perimeter of the university because you have a lot of national organization in the area and they are deciding and working with the university or not. So um, at the really beginning, our goal were to be, was to have a referential of all, all our uh, research structures. So 
you could have maybe in each of your country a system. We have a national system to identify the structure. So we work uh, on that. It's uh, thanks to that uh, we had uh, about 300 different structures. So uh, it's for France, it's a lot of uh, of labs, 300. And uh, as you can see, it's uh, about 13% of the French research in that area. So it's a significant uh, object to to do a, some, such a study about uh, how we we use open science or open access in, in an area. About 10,000 researchers. What you have to understand for my uh, on my purpose is that we have formally 14 different institutions. In that 14 institution, you had national organization, universities, and what we call in France grande école, like uh, engineering school and that kind of uh, structure. So they all had have different way of uh, using open access or open science. In some parts, you have some mandatory, for instance, open access uh, system with uh, an open archive. In others, they use a national open archive, which name is AL in France. Uh, so, in fact, it's very different, uh, a landscape uh, very different. And so, about uh, 15,000 uh, articles a year, we just have f about 40% in open access when we check or in the National uh, Open Archive, or in, uh, you know, in Scopus or Web Science, you have that kind of information. So we are about 40%. So we can't do a policy with just uh, less than half of our um, content. And the only thing we have, it's since, since three years now, there is a common identifier for the signature. So. Uh, but this common identifier is used only by less than 50% of the researcher. <laughs> so the same, we have a, a quality problem on, because we are building a new system, a new university. And in France particularly, we have a lot of joint units with research organization. And in that case, we have a lot of kind of signature. For instance, to let you understand, if you are familiar with that, in the web of science for the national organization, the CNRS, we just speak about the CNRS in the former uh, speech, they have more than 40,000 different kind of signature. So you can imagine in our case for uh, our university, we have more than 20,000 different signature identified, variant name, what you call variant name. So that means that to find our corpus is very difficult. So. In this system university, one of the, the only thing well organized was the European unit. In fact, in each of the center, research center or university, we had one person or several person working on the European project. Of course, they are not librarian. I'm speaking about international relationship uh, team. So they follow the European project in the area. And as you may know, when you apply for a European project, you have several people, or in the case of an ERC, you may have one person. And in general, it's in France, I think it's the same maybe in Germany, we use the national organization. When you have a researcher from the CNRS, which is a national organization, and linked to a joint unit with a university, they will apply on the name of the national research organization. So when in CORDIS, which is an database of the European system, 
you want to find your university, you will have a lot of uh, that uh, rate on the CNRS application or CEA, which is another uh, national organization. So it's very hard to find your guys <laughs> or your girl in, in the in the batch of name. So just to let you understand, we have more than eight hundred program in the framework program seven and eight. Uh, so H. H 2020, we have more than 8,800 uh, <laughs> uh, projects which have been uh, chosen. So uh, when you know the, the odds to have a European pro project, it's uh, a way uh, much more program we applied. And in part of the different institution, we have the data of when research apply to a European program. So when we uh, see, we saw that this uh, group of uh, European unit had the information of the project we won in the area, we, pro we discussed with them, explaining that on our side we had this referential with all the labs of the, uh, of the territory, and they have all the name of the researcher and the unit who won which one's um, a European project. And on that point, we decided to work with the European tool. So on one side, uh, first we used CORDIS to have to uh, have more information about the European project, because so far this group, this uh, European unit, they used an Excel file <laughs> and they do copy paste from uh, CORDIS or, uh, and they didn't uh, use a workflow, very automatic workflow to, to use the API. And on our side, we used the API to, uh, uh, of course, uh, have some information about the publication on, for instance, the French uh, Open Archive or uh, Scopus or Web of Science. And on the other side, we knew Opener, and we saw in that case uh, a possibility to check if the policy of European uh, project, uh, you know about open access, open, open science, were uh, really used and uh, applied by the researcher. It was the, f the first idea to see how the researcher uh, used or not <laughs> the possibility of Europe and even the mandatory <laughs> uh, solution of Europe. So first of all, we had this uh, software, in fact, created on an open source uh, language. It was first, as you can see, there is a menu. At the, at the really beginning, we had one line, <laughs> and then we completed. So we have, uh, of course, all our str uh, research structure, in so around 300, like I said. Then we have some information about uh, the memorandum of understanding we, we signed with other countries, and we follow which kind of publication we have with this uh, um, structure and universities. But uh, what I will speak about the funding part. So our idea was to link the funding we have in Europe or in France and to check uh, what is the reaction or the, the kind of publication and data we can find through these fundings. As you may know, uh, fundings, of course, they are very well uh, in the acknowledgement of the publication. You can find everything. Uh, it's uh, very clear. But in fact, when you check, even if in tools like uh, Web of Science, for instance, it's a mess. It's completely a mess. Uh, it's better for US, but uh, at the European level, even for the European program, it's not well 
uh, informed in the, in the acknowledgments. So, in fact, you can't find your publication properly. So we try to uh, have a good quality and to find uh, different ways to improve this quality to cross data. So for each lab, we have different identifier. Uh, of course, all the French one, uh, we have a national uh, system. We have with uh, the national agency, bibliographical agency, we have a, a system and all this, uh, and with the national Ar open archive, and we can do some uh, work on that different um, uh, tools. And for the, for the European project, we did the same, in fact. We took the information from Cordis and we put it for each program and each project. We have all the information Cordis can provide. So it's basically the title, the agreement number, and so. But thanks to each of these numbers, we can, of course, check information and, and fi find other information. I just want to attract your attention about the, the date. We have the starting date and the ending date. And of course, when we just have uh, won a program, we, we won't have data set uh, a few weeks after. So there is this, data, this time and this um, shift between the moment we have the program, the project, and then we can have significant uh, data and information about it. And as you can see, we call this, you can have the money for each, pro each project, you have the, but the general money, you don't have preci precisely which university or which uh, research organization had what money. So thanks to the European unit, we have this information. So we can see if on which program we have what, which amount. Um, and it's, it is important because in some project, we can see, for instance, for ERC, sometimes it, it, it's one researcher from our university, and at the end, we see that we don't have any publication with the name of our university, so it's weird. It, with other projects, when you have a lot of uh, partnership uh, all over Europe, we have a significant part of um, publication without the name of our university, but it could be normal because uh, they work with other universities without, uh, and the publication is done by Swedish colleagues or uh, German colleagues, but not by the group of researchers in our university. So depending on the kind of program, and we can of course filter by program, we, we could have different conclusions and different way of uh, analyzing the, the results. So just uh, the, last the last line you can see found in text, I will speak about it after about the quality. And Cordis, you have in interesting information about the kind of participant you have. In fact, you can know if it's an academic actor, if it's an industrial actor. So depending on the nature of that kind of participant, then you can have different strategy or different uh, information. I will explain that just after. So for each project, you can have the different university. So it's an help for the international relation because they want to know when we go to, for instance, here, it's uh, uh, Universidad de Cantabria. We, we, we can know if we work with them, if we have European project with them. Of course, they check other information if we have uh, a memorandum of understanding. And in the same software, we can check this different information. Okay, you are going to Universidad of Cantabria. We have uh, two European projects with them. We have 
three uh, or one uh, move with them and so it, it helps to, to understand in which field we work with them because for each program you have some information about the discipline. So I will show you that just, just after. So in that case, we know that we are in that project through a national organization. So we have this information thanks to the European unit. So we can't do that kind of project just as librarians. We need first uh, to find uh, this, this group in our university system, then we, we, we share information and we do this project. So on the open science part, now I will speak about how we uh, join these two problematics, two subjects. Overall, so uh, 800 program uh, project. As you can see, we have almost 30,000 open access, uh, uh, sorry, publication documents. That means through CORDIS and OpenAIR, we can find around 30,000 documents. And over these 30,000 documents, we use the DOI, so far only the DOI, to find uh, the open access recovery. So we have, as you maybe can see, over uh, 21,000 DOI. So it's a significant part of the corpus. And on, on this part, we have a 72% open access document. So we can see that the European policy encouraging open access, it's pretty well uh, followed by uh, the, the program. And thanks to the software, we can check in which, if it's a discipline attitude, if it's an attitude by uh, like a, a very recent publication, it's normal because they wait for uh, six months to open the paper. So we can analyze where are the 30% missing. And what is very interesting, it's about the data set because open access publication, we have a good tool, a good national archive, but on the data set, it's less obvious, the, the way of the researcher use the database, the data set, and it's a very uh, European and international way of acting. So thanks to that, as you can see, we have more than 1,000 data set in our uh, link to one of the project, and more than 99% are, uh, are open. So now, for each project, we can see all the publication linked to the project and all the data sets linked to the project. So it helps to understand how the project has been done and if the data set can be used by others. So we can provide services thanks to that. And as you can see, we have the discipline, uh, because in CORDIS, the discipline is not well done. But thanks to the publication, we use the National Archive, Scopus and Web of Science to cross the discipline, and then we had these results. So thanks to the API, we uh, enrich the, the results of uh, CORDIS and Opener Link to better analyze where are the different kind of, uh, of project. And it helps when we want to, we, we have 10 discipline departments in the university. So when we speak with one department, we can do an analyze because we link that kind of discipline with, we cross with the, the department, the thema thematic department, so we can have a better analyze. So just to, to show you, the results is very easy. So we have the name of the publication, the link directly to the, where we find it through open air. And uh, we have the source. So for instance, ALCCSD, the French National Open Archive. 
and you have the author. So far, the author, there, there is no orchid. There, it, the author, it's not uh, the p possible to use it uh, just by the homonyms, but we can't use as a regular aut a bibliographical authority. So we use more the name of the, uh, of the publication in the DOI. And as you can see, we have the date of publication, so we can check from the project when it was won to the publication, the, the, the shift, in fact, understand uh, how it acts. And the data set, which is the other part. So for each project, you have uh, publication and data when you have it, of course. So just to uh, for explaining the whole organization and what we want to do now with all of this, first, as you can see, we have uh, we using just DOI for the matching. We want to improve that. We want to do match uh, thanks to the title and the date of the uh, publication, or for instance, uh, the name of the the author. So we want to improve the matching, but we want to be sure. So we so far we want to use a 100% matching on the the title. We don't want to to be less. As you can see, if it's possible, it's thanks to the link to the European unit. Now, they use the software. Instead of the, the Excel file, they use this. And when they put a new number of, uh, of a European project, it uh, appears directly thanks to the API of Cordis into the software. And they check and they validate the information. They don't have to go to Cordis or, or to go out from the, the, the software. Then. For us, it's, um, we want to use it more for quality. So for each program, we have uh, a sentence, a regular sentence from the European uh, mandatory, you know, thanks to the name of the program and the number of the program. So now we want to give to the researcher the possibility to copy paste this directly when they publish. So as soon as they have the project, they will have this information, but of course they have the project before the publication. <laughs> so we want to improve the quality of the data, so we will have quality in the data at the end, uh, and we can have a uh, virtual circle. Then we want to have, because one of the new axes of the university is open science, so we want to check if we can have a 100% of course of open access at the end of the European program because it's mandatory. So if on that point we can't achieve to have 100, what about other kind of publication? Then we want to use it, so um, we want to use more uh, European uh, API for instance. Now we have the unpaywall application uh, API, so we want to use uh, as we are speaking about European project, we want to use more than the National Archive. We want to check in other kind of API. We have some contact with our innovation center. Uh, I mean, by innovation, I, I mean transfer, technology transfer. And uh, we have open access, uh, open API about uh, patents. So when we have project with a non-academic actor, we want uh, to check if there is link with uh, patent uh, things. It's very hard because if maybe you may know that patents, you don't have even the signature, you have just the name of the person, you have the, just the name of the organization, and sometimes and often you don't have any name about the publication linked to the patent, so it's very difficult. We want to try that. 
and we want to um, to develop the system with the French national agency because the same rule applies for the French national agency and I see in the room uh, a specialist of the subject we will have in France better link between the national agency results and the fund and uh, the publication and the data set so we will use when this API will be uh, will run we will use them to uh, improve our um, our software and the idea was to do a proof of concept through the European project to show it to the uh, governance, to the strategic uh, colleagues in the universities, presidents, research director, and then to encourage to have more information. For instance, the next step for us is to have the project not yet selected. So we know that part of uh, colleagues have it, but we need to have a common uh, way of doing between uh, the national organization because we don't want partial information. We want to use it for all the actors of the university and then we want to add the national research program. So that is uh, so far the, the way we are working. And uh, just to let you know about the quality, uh, we have today a tool for the signature. In fact, when a researcher has to to use the signature, it goes onto the website of the university and it checks and the signature or the name of the lab, it's automatically generated. We just have few information about the European project way of <laughs> uh, do the acknowledgement. So in September we, are, we will have a release with the, uh, all the European project. It will just put the, the beginning of the name of the project or the number of the project and it will have the automatic uh, sentence to put in the acknowledgement. So we want to uh, encourage that kind of uh, behavior through our research because we, we think it will help a lot to encourage open science and to have, uh, because if we don't have quality in the signature, we depend a lot about Scopus, about web of science. We want little by little to find ways to be aside and use just use open, uh, kind of open uh, APA and that kind of, of uh, solution. And the difficulty, the last difficulty is about uh, the discipline. Today we use first the discipline from Scopus and we check in Web of Science and the National Archive, Open Archive, if there are other information about the discipline. But tomorrow we want to use a standard non-linked to uh, uh, Elsevier or uh, Clarivate and more fitting to the way that our university is seeing is research. We are, we will have 15 graduate schools tomorrow uh, in 2020 in the university and for each of them we have different discipline so we want to fit to the view of the university and not so commercial of course so that's pretty all so far so if you have any question of course i'm available thank you very much thank you julian <laughs> we have time for one or two questions do we have any questions here At the back, we have it. You can shout it out, Tiberius. Yeah, I, uh, I will shout it out. It's a, a, a comment with an invitation for all participants to, to, to give an answer or to comment. To my perception, I think it's a misdirection. It's not the ownership that should worry you at most. It's the governance. There is no promise that the ownership falling in the public organization, non-for-profit, commercial, or so on, it is the right, this ownership, whatever infrastructure or non-infrastructure, 
have, it is collective government. So my assumption, which is an invitation for you to comment, is not the problem of ownership. It's a misdirection. It's the problem of governance, most important than the ownership. You mean the ownership of the data? Of the, the ownership this of infrastructure, the ownership of whatever solutions researchers or research support organizations are invited to use. Yeah, but so far, if I well understood the remark, so far the governance of the university don't choose any uh, discipline from no, non-profit. The governance of, of the solution, yeah. not about the university. The governance, say uh, a discovery tool, mm -hmm. a research repository, the governance of that particular solution is more important than the ownership of that solution. Yeah, but so far it's a local solution. Maybe uh, I, I how didn't is your how is it financed, your project? Ah, it, it's not financed, it's uh, just uh, in the university with my team, we develop that with our colleagues from the European unit. It's open uh, language, so it's not financed by any... The ownership is from the university, in fact. So it's... I don't know if I answered the question, because... It, I, I uh, think it I, was a remark from both of the speeches that yeah. you are talking about, Tiberius. Yes, it's not the ownership, it is the governance for Yeah, yeah but uh, I, so I think I agree. I, it's yes. not an <laughs> ownership problem. Yes. That's good, thank okay, you. Okay, thank you, sorry for <laughs> the question. Is this the way to reproductibility? And we have two speakers, Patricia Heterich and Rosie Higman. So, the stage is yours. Um, thank you. Um, my name is Patricia Heterich, and um, my co-presenter, Rosie, and I, we want to take you on um, the road to reproducibility and share our experience with you. Um, our working as a librarian on an open research project. The project we will be talking about is called The Turing Way, so you see the hashtag there. If anyone is tweeting, feel free to um, include that and tag us. We're always um, happy to get some mentions. Um, so The Turing Way that we're talking about, what is it? So. Um, it was a collaboration of researchers, research software engineers, or data scientists, and librarians. And we had funding for seven months um, that started in November 2018, and we just wrapped up in, in May. And um, the idea was basically to um, yeah, work on or contribute to the cultural shift, um, a lot that we had heard about already this morning. Um, and go away from just um, publishing many papers to actually publishing open results and um, reproducible research. Um, as you can see, if we go to the Turing Way in the little bit of background, um, it basically came from um, um, many disciplines going into a bit of a reproducibility um, crisis that was picked up by major news outlets and, uh, and magazines. And basically, if we, if we link that back to the, the theme of this conference, how can um, libraries work with the public? That basically means that like research lost a bit of trust because um, 
the, the news that were out there were basically that you can't trust the results because they aren't reproducible. And um, what basically we want to do like, is share our experience as librarians working on a project to make research more reproducible and win that back that trust from the, from the public into results. If you were wondering why the project is called the Turing Way, it's because the funding for that project came from the Alan Turing Institute. Um, the Alan Turing Institute is um, the UK's National Institute for Artificial Intelligence and Data Science. Um, they are based in London, but they work um, nationally with a network of universities that you can see here, it's 13 of them, including the University of Manchester, where Rosie's from, and um, the University of Birmingham, where I'm working at. Um, but it's not only a network of universities, they also are partnering with, um, with charities, with a lot of industrial partners to really like work um, on data science and most research areas. So the challenges they are looking at um, uh, are basically across the board. They're going from healthcare to actually supporting um, government innovation, um, but also just really um, core research and um, science where the collaboration with the universities comes in. And um, in addition, there are a few projects um, that ba basically just support underlying infrastructure and good guidance and tools um, that all the projects that are working on the actual research can, uh, can use to um, improve what they are doing. And the Turing Way is one of those um, projects that is there to support all the other research that's happening in the Alan Turing Institute. So um, when we started working on this, we, we wanted to recognize that there are fairly good reasons why people at the moment aren't working reproducibly. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's like basically systemic issues around it. Um, at the moment, it's not considered for promotion. We heard that the, um, in the keynote that promotion is a lot about where you publish and publications are biased towards new findings and not just solid results that you've done um, the experiment he wanted to do. It turns out nothing exciting happened. Um, that doesn't get you a publication in nature. Um, working reproducibly might require additional skills, and if you share all the work you're doing, um, it opens up a new user community that you might need to support, um, that you don't necessarily have the time for. So it might take time, and if you're out there transparent um, with what you're doing, there's a good chance that, like, because people can see the whole research process in all its detail, they might scrutinize it more, so you're actually held to a higher standard than um, your colleagues who just get that nature publication. And obviously, you can always plead the fifth and say that you're not responsible for anything that you've been doing in the last um, years of your research. So. We recognize that all these are issues and um, we've worked on the Turing way to um, address some of them and um, help with the ones that we have highlighted in red here. So we're really um, trying to 
to provide um, a guidance for um, and resources to, to get additional skills. Um, and then obviously once you gain that, those, um, it might take you less time to work reproducibly. And uh, locally at the Alan Turing Institute, they're also looking uh, into getting the reproducibility part into um, promotion and assessment criteria for funding. So welcome to the Turing Way. It is um, a handbook, uh, a lightly opinionated guide to reproducible data science. Um, lightly opinionated, obviously, because I've just been talking to you six minutes. Uh, it says on my little clock here about why reproducibility is important, and that obviously shines through the, um, the guide we've written. It's a resource to support PhD students, postdocs, but also PIs and um, teams looking at funding. Um, so the goal we had in mind is to share our resp responsibility for reproducible research. Often it's down to the PhD student who has to um, get all the analysis right, write the code, clean the data, and um, the Turing way uh, we really tried to, to come up with checklists um, that, um, that share out the, the responsibility and um, take away some of the responsibility from the PhD student and really highlight where um, a supervisor can support reproducible research or what um, the administrative teams that um, are in charge of the funding can do um, to, to support that. Um, as you can see, at the moment we have a variety of chapters in the Turing Way, ranging from um, obviously giving an introduction to um, the, the concept of reproducibility, open research that we've heard a lot of um, already, um, but we also looked into some really technical hands-on things that you can do regarding version control, um, or um, how you set up a reproducible environment on your computer yeah. and um, research data management. Um, you can see as well, so there are a few chapters there that uh, you, can, you can guess the library involvement um, already because that's obviously topics that we are um, working on heavily, but um, then we also had the research software engineers that wrote the more, more technical bits. Um, we did all of this in the open, so we basically we really wanted to walk the walk and be completely transparent with what we did. So the whole project was developed on GitHub, as you can see um, on the on the right here, and um, it grew quite quickly. So it's really hard to get on a reasonable screenshot now because there's so much content. Um, and alongside uh, GitHub, we had a GitHub channel that we basically used to chat with people who had questions, so they could just come in, um, ask about potential contributions or if we're covering certain topics, and the <coughs> core team was there to answer. Um, but obviously, um, working openly doesn't mean you necessarily are found by people. Um, so we used more traditional communication channels like newsletters and um, announcements on the uh, key mailings lists that we were on 
to um, highlight what we were doing and give um, monthly updates on what we've been working on because <coughs> not everyone wants to keep track of um, a GitHub repository. And the whole idea was really of working this way was building on the Mozilla Open Leadership Principles, which basically um, take the best bits the internet has to offer and try to apply them to um, good project management and leadership. So um, basically that means you, you make uh, the work you're doing accessible and you try to be as clear as possible. You share wherever pos uh, possible. So a lot of um, the content in the Turing way we actually used from um, openly licensed sources out there. So we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. It was really like a created list of content. And wherever we can, um, it's licensed CC by back, so for everyone to reuse. And it's easy to participate and really inclusive, so we try to um, build as many ways to contribute to the project as possible on various levels. So you can just send us an email, fill a Google form with your experiences on working reproducibly and tips that you would like to share, but there are also clear guidances on um, contributing on GitHub, if someone is familiar with that. And, um, and another bit was um, we have a code of conduct for um, the project on how we expect contributors to behave and to interact with us um, when working virtually with us on, um, the, um, on GitHub, but also for the face-to-face -face, um, sessions we had. And I'll be handing over to Rosie now because um, she's going to expand a little bit more on workshop and training that we've done as part of the project. Thanks. So, um, as Patricia said, the Turing Way was primarily a handbook, so we were really producing an output. But as well as that, we were trying to produce a community around reproducible data science and around these simple best practices. And one of the ways we did that was by running workshops and training exercises. So, this started off quite small. So they started off with three workshops. Um, two of them were for researchers, and they were really a kind of how to make your research reproducible. Um, and one of them was aimed at research software engineers and IT professionals, and it was about how do you set up something called a binder hub, which is a sort of piece of technology that helps support reproducibility at your institution. So how can you help your university's researchers make their research more reproducible? Um, so the sort of slide is just some nice pictures from our events because they were a lot of fun. So I want to share some of the fun that we had. Um, the ones for researchers were run in Manchester and London and then we run the one for um, IT professionals in Sheffield. So one of the things about this project is that we're quite a distributed team. We've probably already picked up that Patricia and I work at different universities and this was a team across the UK. Um, and we tried to build on the sort of carpentry uh, style training for a lot of the work that we were doing to sort of make the workshops interactive and inclusive uh, and we had about 20 people at each of the researcher workshops and then probably sort of 10 to 15 at the IT one because that was a bit more specialised. So that was where we started with our workshops. We then sort of wanted to build out from that so as well as running our own workshops that were sort of branded as Turing Way workshops, we ran events at existing conferences. So 
This is a picture from the Software Sustainability Institute's collaborations workshop. That's quite a big sort of event around software in the UK. Um, and this is sort of our colleagues running a hackathon, so getting other people involved in the project and getting other people to have a go at editing and contributing their knowledge to the Turing Way. Um, and actually, as we're speaking, our colleague Kirsty is at another event uh, around the Carpentries, which is running in Manchester at the moment, and she's running another workshop for researchers. So we've tried to do a mixture of running our own workshops and building a community around the Turing Way, but also going out into existing communities and existing spaces to sort of get best practice known. Um, we then sort of built on that to try and get more people to actively contribute to the guide with some book dashes. So you may have heard of book sprints. So this is when you try and write a book in a week. We thought that's too easy. We'll try and do it in a day. Um, that was hard. So a book dash is um, a full day of writing. And then the night before, you get together for a meal and a chance to network and work out what you want to work on the next day. So we ran this as an open call. We had a sort of competitive process where we then selected 13 people at each event, so we ran two, um, to contribute to the book. So we were selecting people based on their expertise and based on what they said they wanted to bring to the guide. And this was a really good way to bring in lots of knowledge, because one of the difficulties with reproducibility is that it draws in lots of different areas. So you need sort of some more technical things and some cultural things and, yeah, and some librarian kind of information management skills. So at these events, we had about a ratio of one to three. So um, one of us for three participants, it was quite heavy support available. So if they weren't familiar with, say, GitHub, then we could sit there and walk them through the first steps of using it so that they could contribute openly. Um, and we also then sort of helped to facilitate teams of people coming together who all had a shared interest and could write a chapter together on a particular topic. Um, we also had an illustrator in attendance, which is so all the lovely images we're using throughout our slides um, were created at the book dash and these were all created based on things that participants asked for so we asked our participants what is it you know how what are the concepts that you would like to be better illustrated and what do you think would really be better communicated through an illustration than writing several hundred words and they could then talk to the illustrator about what it was that they were working on and he would then draw it up which was really cool so those were the events that we were running, but we were also sort of trying to build a more general community, and this was a global project in its reach. So the core team um, was made up of, uh, so these people, so uh, Rachel and Becky are researchers, uh, Louise, Sarah and James are uh, research software engineers, and James heads up that team at the Alan Turing Institute, and the Binder team is an international collaboration uh, I think partly based in Switzerland and California. As well as that, we had another, so Anna's a research software engineer, so is Martin, uh, Alex is a researcher, Catherine's actually in the administrative team, and it's really interesting because she gets fair, she gets why fair research is important, and she wants to make administrative processes fair so that they can sort of talk to researchers about making research fair whilst practicing what they preach and making their processes fair. And uh, Kirsty Whitaker is the PI for the project, so she was corralling us and getting everyone working on the same page. So that was the core team, and that core team was spread across um, four, I think, sometimes five institutions. So it's quite a challenge to coordinate. 
As well as the core team, we've also had input from lots of other institutions. So um, one of the difficulties with a project like this is how are you going to recognise these people? So we've this is from our GitHub, and there's a nice sort of way you can recognise contributions with emojis. So each emoji stands for a different type of contribution. So you don't have to write a chapter. What you might do is contribute an idea. You might look at a chapter that someone's already written and review, give them some feedback. So we've tried to make through all of these steps to make it as accessible as possible and as open as possible and make sure that people feel that they're part of a community and feel that their work's being rewarded in a kind of open research space because as we've sort of heard already, incentives for open research is a major issue. Um, and all of this is kind of building towards our community where everyone brings their own skills, helps each other upskill and generally improves our research practice. So what were Patricia and I doing on this project? Why was a librarian on a research project? Um, we kind of brought a few different things and we sort of wanted to start with this quote from Kirsty, who recruited us both and kind of wrote us into the grant application. Because she's really frustrated that there's lots of things that happen in data science that are basically information management. So they're basically what libraries do already, but put into a new context and maybe with new technologies applied. And so she's really keen that librarians get involved in projects like this um, and that the Turing Way can kind of benefit from librarians' expertise in the uh, sort of work that they're producing. So the, the rest of the sort of thoughts of why we think we were involved. So Patricia and I are both uh, research data management specialists. So quite a lot of what we bring to this project was that expertise and sort of helping work out how do you manage your data in a way that it will end up being more reproducible at the end of the project? And how do you plan that in from the start? So as well as that, we were also sort of bringing in a lot of knowledge of open research, so working, used to being used to working with open access, knowledge of the publishing process. Uh, I think librarians also do a lot of kind of cross-sector, cross-community. We're used to talking to different audiences and bringing different groups of people together, and that was part of what we were trying to do on this project, was you know, we used to organising events and trying to organise communities and bringing different groups of people together so that they can contribute to the project. Um, I think there was also something quite important for us about putting what we preach into practice. So, you know, really walking the walk. This was an open research project. That was a bit of a challenge. I'm not a GitHub expert. That was kind of something I had to learn. And so part of what we were trying to do is put the advice that we give out on a day-to-day -day basis into practice. So why should we do this? This is a sort of from an individual point of view as professionals. Uh, I, it really helped our understanding of the research process, so we all advise researchers on a regular basis, but actually understanding the pressures that they, you're under when you're on a grant, particularly this was sort of five months to produce something and how that changes your behaviour and changes your priorities, because if it wasn't going to contribute to the project's goals, then we didn't have time to do it because we had five months and then the money runs out. So understanding how that sort of pressure changes your uh, behaviour. I think it also helped us gain a lot of skills in Git and GitHub. I think we've both got a lot more confident through that. Um, and also facilitating slightly unusual events. So a book dash isn't something that I think most libraries have run. Um, and our, even the workshops were probably more interactive and more participant driven than most library workshops. So gaining experience in that setting was really useful. I think most importantly it was a lot of fun. Um, and from a sort of from an institutional perspective, it really helped our library teams to sort of show that we were 
walking the open research walk and we were using the services that we recommend to researchers and this is now something that we can go out and say you know we as a library do this and we think you should do it too um, the other sort of ways in which i feel like it's benefited our institutions is that it's helped us create guidance on areas we were less familiar with so by collaborating in this way we were able to generate new guidance um, and that's now available as a community resource and anyone can use it uh, I think it kind of helped us be taken seriously as a collaborator. So to give an example, um, there's an open science group of researchers at the University of Manchester. We've sort of been working with them a bit, but I found it much easier to work with them after they'd come along to a Turing Way workshop and seen that you know the library was hosting and delivering this workshop. That then kind of gives us a bit more credibility and makes conversations around open science much easier. Um, and I think it's also given us a sort of heads up about how research is changing. So the Turing Institute is the UK's National Data Science Institute. There's sort of a lot of people on the real sort of forefront of research, particularly in the technologies that they use. And as librarians, if we're looking to sort of preserve this knowledge in the future and make it accessible in the future, it's really important we understand what those technologies are and what's coming our way. We sort of included a particular example, um, Docker files are a way of bundling up your software and data. They come with a whole load of other files attached and at some point libraries are going to be handed those and asked to preserve them so we better start understanding what it is that they involve and how they work um, so i'm just going to skip to the last slide and then we'll leave you with the resources so as patricia mentioned this work was funded by the turing institute who got money from the epsrc uh, the engineering and physical sciences research council and all the lovely illustrations were from a company called scriberia but I'll kind of finish by leaving up these resources. So if you want to know more about the Turing Way, if you're curious about the project, uh, the top one is our GitHub, where you can find everything that we've done, like from mundane conversations about logistics right up to sort of quite kind of high-level conversations. Gitter is where we usually hang out if you want to come and chat to us. Uh, the tiny letter is our newsletter, so if you want to get updates on the project, uh, every presentation Every book, chapter, everything the Turing Way has done is archived on Zenodo. Um, this presentation is also on Zenodo. Um, we tend to tweet a lot at the Turing Way, so if you'd like to come and talk to us there, then you're very welcome to use that hashtag. So I think we've got time for maybe one question. Is that? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Questions for Rosie and Patricia? <laughs> so I, I wonder, this is a, likely a living handbook, right? I mean, there's still areas which you have not fully yeah. fleshed, I mean, fleshed out and the illustrations are not, uh, maybe not all there yet. No. Yeah, so um, how do you plan to continue to work on this? I mean, do you have a group of volunteers who continue <laughs> without the funding? Um, so we have, there, there is a bit of a community and there are a group of people who are continuing to contribute. And um, you know, all the way through the project we've had people contributing who weren't paid, um, which is why the sort of crediting them with emojis and with credits in the book was quite important. So uh, I think funding is something that's sort of being looked at at the moment. Um, but, but there will be people continuing to contribute. And yeah, the handbook is live and it's accessible, but it will change as and grow as more people contribute. So. Yeah. 
Do you follow the stats? How many people are using this? No, there actually we, we have a conscious decision that we don't run the book on, on Google Analytics, so we don't want to know how many people read it. Um, where we're looking into, we, we're really measuring up input or impact by how many people contribute. Um, so um, the funding we're looking at and the grant follow-up grant um, application basically has the KPIs really around contributions. So we, if anyone reads this, if anyone cites us, we're, we're happy that they're doing it, but the really thing that we're interested in is the community and people actively contributing. Um, and that's what we based our KPIs on um, going forward. And it, it, as Rosie said, it works quite well. It's quite interesting that there are a lot of people out there that actually want to share their knowledge, often don't really know how to. So if they can see that it fits into the Turing way and um, our guidelines of how they can contribute what they know are clear enough, they actually are happy to do that. Interesting, we heard about market, marketing earlier. How do we market this? <laughs> the problem with marketing. Um, I think like we really like used the, um, the communication channels we had and um, we have the advantage that the Alan Turing Institute is behind there and they are physically, they do have a physical space and um, they can make certain decisions about like, I don't want to say forcing, but like they can like, they have ways to nudge people into contributing um, through their internal structures. <laughs> um, and um, I think because we, we uh, use the binder technology that's built on Jupyter Hub, so we basically have the connection to open source communities um, that are already like well established in, in, um, in the open source and contributing space. So um, beyond that, we, we do things like this. We come to, to Lieber and tell you about it, hoping <laughs> that you're going to spread the word from here. So. Um, that's our marketing strategy. It's like really, try, we tried to to be as many um, at as m many events as it was like possible within the UK that seemed to fit what we were doing and really like um, spread the word and invite people to to join the fun. Thank you. Do we have any last questions? Then we give all the presenters a big hand. Thank you. And now you know it is the meeting of participants at the quarter past four. Thank you.